1: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot
0: Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
1: Hello, good friends. Good to see you again. And welcome, uh, welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. Well, we all remember that President George W. Bush once famously said, they misunderestimated me. <laughs> but if there's one president who's been grossly misunderestimated, it's not George Bush, it's Joe Biden. In the last two years, Biden's done an incredible job getting us over COVID, passing major bipartisan legislation, ending the war in Afghanistan, leading worldwide support for Ukraine, restoring America's leadership in the world, making the American economy stronger than ever, for all of which, the poor guy gets no credit. Maybe because people don't really know the real Joe Biden or what he's accomplished. But that could soon change thanks to a terrific new book called The Last Politician, solidly researched and written by The Atlantic's Franklin Four. It examines the good parts and the not so good parts of the first two years of the Biden administration. And overall, the book convinced me The more you know about Joe Biden, the more you appreciate him. Frank Ford, good to talk to you again, and thank you for joining us. Welcome to the Bill Press Pod. I am delighted to be here. Uh, We want to congratulate you, first of all, the new book, your new book, The Last Politician Inside Joe Biden's White House and the Struggle for America's Future, just out. Debuted, I think, number six or something, already on the New York Times bestseller list. Uh, Frank, I didn't think books about Joe Biden <laughs> sold. Yeah, <laughs> what um, happened? <laughs> <laughs> well, here's what happened,
0: and and this is actually leads into, I think, a, a point of perhaps some substance, which is that Joe <laughs> Biden exists in our world as this piece of furniture. Everybody thinks that he's he's dull. Uh, There's this widespread sense that he is this uh, marionette who's dancing when uh, Ron Klain or somebody is pulling the strings. And I think those of us with a little bit of a political memory can think back to another time when Joe Biden was this guy who was a source of fascination because he had these insecurities that he wore on his sleeve. Uh, He was a guy who had this outsized ambition. He was somebody who had a very determined personality. And so my job actually was simply to recover the fellow that uh, people remember from way back when and show how he exists in the
1: White House. You know, um, I'm glad you started there because I've known Joe Biden for a long time. You know, he and I roughly the same age, uh, came from Delaware, both both from Delaware. And, um, I remember Joe Biden when he was a lot more, you know, outgoing and backslapping, and, um, kind of a more fun pers- presence. Right now. I think he still is, but is the white house hiding that side of Joe Biden? Well, I think is Joe Biden hiding that side of Joe Biden uh, is maybe the yeah. way
0: to frame it, which is that, um, I think Joe Biden is somebody who is very well aware of his own tendency to, uh, speak some of the, uh, the unfiltered thoughts that percolate to the front of his mind. And, um, there was, uh, this long sense that the guy was a gaffe machine that, uh, yeah, the, the, right. the famous instances where he's created policy on the fly, <laughs> by by saying the thing that he meant, but wasn't supposed to say. And so I think he's very aware of the fact that as president of the United States, he can't afford to be overly verbal in that sort of way. Mm-hmm. Um, Mm-hmm. But I think they would benefit from putting him out there more that I think that uh, I, when I was working on this book, I had the ability to go in twice to talk to him off the record as part of groups of journalists. But the Biden that you see in private um, is somebody who I think would be appealing in public. Yeah. Sometimes his stories go on for too long. Sometimes he forgets a name. Um, sometimes he says something a little bit uh too bluntly or like slightly inaccurately, but then you get to see the way in which he's moving the chesses chess pieces around the board, and you think, okay, this guy has like more than enough mental acuity to do the job, and he's very skilled.
1: Yeah. No, I agree with you. I wish they almost would let you know let that real Joe Biden be seen more often. So um how long did it take you to write the book? Um <clears throat> well uh I don't
0: know if you've ever had this experience working on a book built, but it, it ballooned on me. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> originally, my publisher asked me to write a book about the first hundred days of the Biden administration, which was really going to be a book about governing. They were coming in, dealing with the pandemic, the wrecked institutions of government they inherited from Trump, the economy that was teetering, and... Um, Then the 100th day rolled around and Biden had proposed his infrastructure bill and the bill that the build build back better bill. And I thought, well, that's my story. But the thing that morphed on me as I was reporting the book was that I just started to become um, more interested in Joe Biden as uh, as a character, as a politician. And uh, I think the story changed on me a bit where I wasn't just writing about the government. I was writing
1: about a president. And um, did you, you said you were part of a group of journalists meeting with Joe Biden off the record. Did you interview him for the book? Um, and, uh, and how about members of his administration?
0: Uh, I was, I had good access to members of his administration. I did not have uh amazing access to Joe Biden himself. I, I was able to see him twice, but it wasn't an interview for the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was important for me to be able to see him up close, to be able to make my own judgments about, um, the way that he, you know, about his energy levels, about his, um, his mental state, just so I could be sure about that for myself. Uh, uh, given everything people, uh, kind of seem to think about him. Yeah. Um, but but it was really, uh, he's got a very small inner circle that surrounds him and the people who've been with him for decades, they're very loyal to him. It's almost familial the way that they revolve around him. And in fact, contrary to this image that uh, he's being <laughs> controlled by somebody else, I'd say he's a very dominant father figure Mm -hmm. In that group, that he's somebody Mm -hmm. who also um, throws himself into whatever problem A is, whether it's uh, baby formula shortage or the withdrawal from Afghanistan or um, uh, legislative negotiations. He's not. He's not a uh, a delegator. He's somebody who's kind of always hovering, always asking questions himself. You know, there was a time in the withdrawal from Afghanistan, where he's got the map of Kabul out and he's trying to find paths for refugees to get to the airport. And that's kind of an emblematic sort wow. of moment for
1: him. Yeah. I mean, talk about um, fine, t- fine tuning, right, or getting into the fine, fine details. Uh, Frank, I'm intrigued by the title of the book, The Last Politician. Um, you know, obviously, <laughs> Joe Biden's not but so what message were you trying to convey by dubbing him the last politician?
0: Yeah, I mean, the title is a provocation um, that I was thinking about the presidents that came before him, that both Barack Obama and Donald Trump were people who seemed who, who self-consciously came from outside the system and they considered themselves leaders of movements as opposed to professional politicians. Um, Joe Biden is unmistakably a professional politician. It's been what he's been since his, his twenties and, um, he inhabits a style. Um, he represents an archetype that I think is, is leaving us, (laughs) um, which is that he is this guy who believes fervently in persuasion. He believes in deal-making, Um, And in our polarized times, it's like we're not even sure sometimes that we can coexist with people from the other party. And I think Biden was his theory of how you save democracy is essentially that you had to prove that politics was still capable of delivering important things to citizens. And that's been the test of his presidency. And um, if he succeeds, he proves that. Um, that, the, that the noble, uh, tedious profession of the professional politician is worth honoring and sustaining. And if he fails, then you know politics will be broken in a fundamental sort of way because he'll be replaced by
1: an authoritarian. Well, obviously they're um, 18 months to go or more or less in his presidency. but hasn't he already proven that point? Hasn't he already shown? that um, even in this divided Congress and divided nation um, he can get major legislation passed with some support from the other party right so he's he's shown that creaky institutions
0: were still capable of functioning he's shown that it's still possible to achieve big things um, uh, if, you know from the executive branch and through the legislative branch I um, his legislative Track record, I think, exceeds anybody's reasonable expectations for what you what a president could get out of an evenly divided Senate. Um, uh, and yet, there's this other part of the job, which is the messaging, communications, salesmanship part of it. And so he's got to show now that all these things that he's accomplished can connect with with voters. And so. Yeah. That's the test.
1: Yeah, that that is a challenge. You know, there's several points in your book where you point out um, many examples of where people, uh, Joe Biden was written off, right? People wrote yep. him off, they, they counted him out, and every time <laughs> Joe Biden doggedly hangs in there and bounces back or comes back. So, I mean— would you say he's like the most underestimated president we've ever had, at least in our lifetime? Yes, I, I think so. I mean, I think he's underestimated and
0: unappreciated that, um, that he has these skills. And this is, again, goes back to the title. He's got these skills that the culture isn't able to really connect with. And there's something about um, the way that he talks and, and, his style that I think media doesn't connect with. Um, This was a source of tension, I think, between him and former President Obama, that Obama has um, uh, the the policy fluency. He's got the elegant oratory. He's got this uh, smooth personal style. Um, Joe Biden is somebody who is, um, he's so screamingly, human. <laughs> he, <laughs> I, 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 he wears this humanness on his sleeve. I mean, all of the insecurities, all of the ambitions, um, all of the foibles are right there for everyone to see. And um, he's somebody who elites, I think, struggle to respect. And he knows it. And he's always he knows that there are people who are always rolling their eyes at him, and that fuels uh, his determination to prove the world wrong.
1: And you know, um, underestimated. I, I all the stories I hear t- see today, and everybody's writing basically the same story. Uh, Joe Biden's too old. The Democrats really should, you know, he really should step down, let somebody else come in. He can't do the job. He can't. He maybe he can't even beat Trump. And I remember all of that in twenty twenty in the primary, right? People were saying, "Oh, Joe Biden, come on, Joe, go home to Wilmington." Right? I mean, boom, boom. You'll never make it. You'll never be the nominee, and you could never beat Donald Trump. Boom. And and yet four years later, people are writing the same story.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean that he'll be able to pull it off this right. time. Um, can I just make a point of media criticism here, please? Is I find the way that the media is talking about both the age question and the Hunter Biden question to be a bit disturbing because. It's as if they're placing both of those things on a continuum with Donald Trump. So the fact that uh, Biden struggles to remember a name or uh, his sentences will occasionally trail off in a press conference, that's a mental acuity issue that's on a spectrum all of a sudden with Donald Trump's mental acuity issues, which are, to me, far different in scale and kind. like You can't compare somebody... um, uh you know being having a little bit less energy uh and maybe starting the day a bit later to Donald Trump being an absolute lunatic right <laughs> those are not those are not two
1: sides of the same coin no amen and by the way the same thing uh, since you went there i i'll just add a note on the impeachment i mean i think it is irresponsible for journalists to report on this bullshit Uh, Biden impeachment as having the same weight, if you will, or the same substance, same evidence as the two Trump impeachments.
0: Yeah, right. I mean, it's uh, we can concede that Hunter Biden did some scuzzy things and we can wish that Joe Biden had told him not to do them. And I think that that's a very legitimate thing to say. But again, not on a spectrum with Donald Trump subverting
1: American democracy, (laughs) openly right Defiantly, trying to overthrow the united states government so um you know as you've said and i indicated too joe biden has look he's not perfect he has but he has accomplished a lot right he got the american rescue plan he got the infrastructure plan he got the the chips bill whatever they they call it he got this gun control measure the economy's strong he got us out of covid he doesn't get credit for any and, of that. And you, you just you just you just skipped uh, you just
0: skipped the Infl- Inflation Reduction Act, which is going to you know the yep. biggest, most important climate change bill in American history and by a mile. Yep. That's going to provide us with the moral leadership in order to um, continue to yep. be at the right, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, the vaccine is a very good example of that to me. I mean, the vaccine rollout, where he strolls into office and there is no plan for scaling up production of the vaccine and getting it, getting the shots into arms. Six months later, um, it's possible to stroll into a CVS without an appointment and get a life-saving jab in your Mm -hmm. arm. It's one of the best designed, most successful programs in American history. And yet the public doesn't really connect with that. Um, I think that he's been, his administration has been hesitant to trumpet certain successes that, They look at what they do on the economy and they look at inflation. They say it still exists. And whatever we crow about what we're doing for manufacturing or to save the economy to to push towards full employment will never resonate because people are feeling too much pain. We can't crow about the vaccine and how it saved a million lives because um, COVID is still out there. And so they've been a bit reticent to uh, to toot their own horn, which I think has been a mistake. Um, and then I do think that maybe, you know, if I were to say that age mattered at all, I'd say that he is not as good a political communicator as he was mm-hmm. 10 mm-hmm. years ago. And I think yeah. that that comes at a cost for uh, talking about uh, his narrative of, of his accomplishments. Is he too old to be president? I mean, can we just, add, we need to disaggregate that question into a couple parts. Does he have the ability to do the job of president? I'd say the answer is clearly yes. Like, you know, every, my book is filled with
1: examples of how he's very energetically governing. Right. You 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 talk about uh you know, his visit to Kiev, for example, right? That incredible long flight and the train ride and all of that. And and most recently his visit to Vietnam, right? I mean, yeah. reporters I talked to were on the trip said, you know, they were just begging the White House, Jesus, give us some time off, right? <laughs> give us time to take a nap or catch up or something. And Biden right. just kept pushing yeah. through. Right. Well, then there's the political
0: question, which is that clearly voters um, are not convinced by (laughs) what I just described. And that's a real that's an issue he's got to figure out a way to overcome, because if it matters to voters, it matters to his reelection and then it matters to the future of America. So he's got to find a way to get past that. And then there's the question about his next term where I can't tell you. what type, how he's going to age and, um, everybody ages differently. I would rather that we didn't have an 85 year old president, because I think that there are certain risks attached to that, but, um, you know, elections are choices. And, (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, I think that there's a lot of pundit wish casting right now, um, about Biden leaving the race. And I, I, you know, I, I've, I contributed to that a little bit by saying I wouldn't be totally surprised if something else happened. But I think the exceedingly likely outcome is that he's he's in this. He's going to go full tilt and
1: um, elections are choices. Right. Right. So let's talk about one part of um, which we devote a lot of time to in the book that um, uh, maybe Biden will not be seen in the best slate. And that is Afghanistan. You know, on the one hand, uh, Barack Obama promised to end the war in Afghanistan and didn't, right? Joe Biden promised and did. And yet, what we remember most about Afghanistan is 13 Americans killed at the airport. um, While, what was it? I think in your book you said 124,000 total refugees were, uh, you know, gotten. we got them out of Afghanistan, but... Everybody remembers the 13 Americans killed and and blame Biden. One of the
0: perverse ironies of what happened in Kabul during the month of August 2021 is that if there hadn't actually been that humanitarian catastrophe at the airport, then I don't know if there would have been the political will um, to to extricate 124,000 Afghans from the country. I mean, it was really... Republicans weren't criticizing him for that because uh, the the scenes were so terrible that I think everybody's hearts uh, softened during that period. Uh, You know, uh, Biden, after the fact, argued that ripping the bandage off in Afghanistan was always going to entail messiness. And he's probably right about that, Uh, you know, but he could have done a better job of a for warning the country that that was going to be the case, and B, planning for a lot of the humanitarian um, consequences of that. So, what the hundred twenty-four thousand people who got saved were saved because uh, the military, the Biden administration, was so good at improvising in mm-hmm. a crisis. Yeah. But, you know, it would be better if they weren't improvising in that, in that crisis than <laughs> that. They'd actually planned for that and had begun um, to extricate people before the government collapsed and uh, had figured out how to smooth a transition in the country where people could continue to leave in orderly fashion um, even after the U.S. left the country. And, you know, it, it's I give them. The way that I tried to depict the story was not in a moralizing sort of way. Um, What I tried to do as I narrated that in the book was try to recover it as a a decision made by human beings uh, who uh, were doing the best that they could. And they make mistakes and they have blind spots. But it wasn't a case of incompetence uh, uh, so much as... Uh, you know, as I've been talking about Joe Biden, it's like the humanness
1: of it all that sometimes gets in the way. Exactly. Again, our guest today on the Bill Press Pod, Franklin, for a very, very important book and a wonderful read uh, about Joe Biden, the last politician. Uh, we'll tell you again at the end of the show, but I want to tell you now that uh, this is really a book you ought to go out uh, if you have any interest at all in the f- direct future direction of this country. Uh, where we've been the last couple of years and where we're heading. Uh, and there's a link at the uh, in the episode notes to today's podcast for you to get your own copy of The Last Politician by Franklin Ford. Frank, hold on just a 2nd We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be right back and pick up uh, about um, Union Joe or Amtrak Joe, whatever you yeah. want to call, President of the United States. For today's podcast, I want to give a shout out to our brothers and sisters of the United Auto Workers, the UAW members, out on strike against the three big American automakers. They're demanding an increase in wages, and they deserve it after voluntarily accepting a cut in wages back under COVID in order to keep the auto industry alive. Well, now that auto sales are booming again, the big CEOs are enjoying big pay raises, and it's only fair that auto workers get their fair share as well. Check out their website for more about what they're asking for and what they deserve at their website, uaw.org.
0: Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's
1: com slash Wondery. And we're back on today's podcast, the book, The Last Politician Inside Joe Biden's White House and the Struggle for America's Future, author Franklin Ford joining us on today's podcast. Uh, I want to come back to, um, you mentioned Barack Obama, right? Uh, certainly writing about Joe Biden, you have to assess the relationship between Barack Obama and Joe Biden. First of all, you could not get two more different cats, right, in the White House together. No, no. (laughs) Right? So how'd they get along, and how did it work out? Uh, So
0: it's interesting. I think that their relationship actually evolved over time, that at the beginning, um, you have these differences between the two of them. I think that... Joe Biden is somebody who always thinks of himself as an outsider. He has this chip on his shoulder. Barack Obama, you know, very, even if he comes from like way outside (laughs) the American, like uh, elite was very comfortable with the American elite uh, in a certain way. And um, there were just differences in style. I mean, Joe Biden has, as I said, has worn his insecurities on his sleeve Uh, Barack Obama isn't somebody who inhabits his insecurities. Um, And uh, it was, it was a relationship that took time to evolve. I think by the end, uh, uh, John Favreau, Obama's speechwriter told me that when Barack Obama campaigned, he would include all of these lines kind of attacking politics as normal and politicians. Uh Yeah. And by the time that he was done, Barack Obama would edit his speech speeches and ask his speechwriters to excise those lines because he'd come to develop so much respect for the likes of Joe Biden and Harry Reid and Nancy Pelosi and mm-hmm. their professional expertise and acumen and their approach to the world. And so I think that there was um, a respect that grew and kind of a convergence of styles.
1: Uh, yeah, and they were delivering for Obama. And I think finally he came to realize that. I was really struck. I forget now who did the interview with Joe Biden early in his presidency where they said, um, I think was it a, maybe a CNN town hall or something. So, um, you know, w- w- what's it like living in the White House, right? Yeah. The, the family quarters. And Joe Biden said, you know, I'm just getting used to it. I'd never been here. And I thought, whoa, wait a minute. Eight years and Obama never had Joe Biden up for lunch or breakfast or dinner or just just to chat. Yeah. 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 Uh, Yeah. Striking.
0: Um, There's a moment in my book where Joe Manchin got a call from Barack Obama um, about a piece of legislation. And Manchin told Biden, it's the first time I've heard from Barack Obama. And Joe Biden told him, well, it's a long line. Um, <laughs> yeah, and so that's actually that points to a very different a big difference between the two of them that, um, Obama was somebody who kind of scoffed at the idea that he could melt the hearts of moderate Republicans by schmoozing them mm-hmm. in the White House. And Joe Biden um, came in with a different theory, which is that the majesty of the Oval Office provided him with the ultimate home court advantage, and he worked with the historian John Meacham to structure the Oval Office in a way in which he could point to various portraits and set pieces in the Oval Office and use them as the basis for telling stories to his guests. Like, oh, yeah. there's MLK right next to uh, uh, Robert Kennedy. And you know Robert Kennedy had wiretapped Martin Luther King, but you could see people change. They have the capacity to change. And Bobby Kennedy became a great champion for civil rights or, oh, there's Jefferson and Madison. You know, American history has always been rough. This isn't the first mm-hmm. rough patch that we've had. And, um, the, you know, Biden is, is always in that retail sort of mode where he's looking for narrative material. The, the, yeah. the staff the staff that doesn't make it with Joe Biden are the ones who fail to understand that narrative bent, that when he wants information about policy, he wants specific data that he can weave into a story that he can use to talk to other politicians.
1: I love that description of the Oval Office. Uh, uh, And I don't think, I think you may may have left out the portrait of FDR, hugely significant for Joe Biden, uh, hanging in the Oval Office. But I I do have to add, (laughs) you may be too polite to, I thought that one of the funniest moments in the book is that Joe Biden said that Barack Obama didn't even know how to swear, right? He didn't, he didn't even know how to say, fuck you.
0: Yeah, no, he, it was like, he didn't have, he didn't have the right enunciation. He wasn't hitting the consonants in the right sort of way. Yeah, no, that, that says it in a, in a nutshell that when Joe Biden can say that it comes from the gut and that when, Barack Obama said it. It was a bit like a professor.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Now, what about the relationship between Joe Biden and Kamala Harris? How close is that? Uh, Has it evolved as well? Well, it's so we can't
0: talk about that relationship without calling back the Obama uh, Joe Biden relationship because here's the thing, um, or as Joe Biden would say, here's the deal.
1: Um, No joke. No joke. Here's the deal.
0: Literally. literally, uh, Barack Obama. Needed Joe Biden. He may have rolled his eyes uh, when he talked and told the stories over and over again, but he was self conscious that there were these gaps in his resume. There were these relationships he didn't have, and Joe Biden supplied them. And so mm-hmm. it was kind of um, a superficial disrespect that Joe Biden felt while there was actually substantive respect. I think that Joe Biden was determined to treat Kamala Harris with the substantive respect that he never received. So he would refer to Kamala Harris as the vice president, which was set in contrast to the way that Barack Obama would describe Biden as my vice president, Mm. which Hmm. Biden felt made him feel like a kind of domestic animal. Um, And formally, he's always saying, you know, loop the vice president's office into this, check with the vice president on that. But at the end of the day, uh, Joe Biden has been around the block so many times. He has all these relationships. He doesn't need Kamala Harris in the same sort of way. And so Kamala Harris, I think, has struggled to find her place in the White House and her place in in Joe Biden's orbit. And it didn't help that she set all sorts of rules for herself about what she didn't want to do. Um, And primarily... You know, as as the first black woman, there was kind of a very obvious role that she could play, which is that Joe Biden just doesn't connect with his own political base. And um, he could he could use he could have used and still can use Kamala Harris to help him um, connect with that base. And it wasn't until the Dobbs decision overturning Mm -hmm. Roe v. Wade, where Kamala Harris was able to talk about abortion in a way that Joe Biden simply couldn't because Joe Biden's feelings about abortion are um a little bit more complicated as a um right. as, a, as a liberal catholic and i think that's where she started to uh started to shine finally but mm-hmm. uh it's a hard job <laughs> it's yep. really yep. a hard job
1: yeah yeah and on the slavery question too uh, with Ron DeSantis, you know she she jumped into that too um do you think that history will show um, Ukraine as Biden's finest moment, stepping up to the plate, uniting um, our allies uh, in support of Ukraine? Yeah, I think so. I think so. And um, he's had a tough task
0: because if you uh, scrolled back uh, a year before the invasion or two years before the invasion, the world was generally indifferent to the threat of authoritarianism. Say Americans were were somewhat indifferent to the threat, but certainly European allies were indifferent to the threat. And so Joe Biden's success was that he was able to um, craft this alliance. Uh, he was able to succeed in um, helping give Ukraine just enough arms, just the right arms, that they could fend off the invasion of Kiev, protect the integrity for the most part of the Ukrainian, uh, homeland, and then, um, kept giving them more and more substantial arms, uh, allowed the relationship between the U S military and the Ukrainian military to become, um, much more mature, much better integrated. And, um, You know, he and Zelensky sometimes are operating at cross purposes. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Zelensky's job is to apply maximal pressure on Western leaders to give him as many arms as possible. Right. Western leaders like Joe Biden don't always love that Zelensky is going over their heads, talking over their heads to their publics to apply pressure on them. Uh, Joe Biden is a child of the Cold War, and he's deathly afraid of... Uh, nuclear escalation. And so he's always asking the question, if I give this package to the Ukrainians, what are the risks? You know, how mm-hmm. is Russia going to respond? And um, as a supporter of Ukraine, sometimes I, uh, that frustrates me. But as um,
1: as a citizen of this planet, I'm also glad that somebody <laughs> yeah. is asking
0: the question about nuclear escalation.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. I was really struck um, in your account of um President Biden's support in Ukraine, his ac- actions there, that you you come to the conclusion, tell me if I'm wrong, that this kind of proved the value of Joe Biden's experience. <laughs> uh, and he's, been, as you say, been around the track a few times. And you actually used the phrase, uh, he proved to be um, the man for his age. A man for his age. Yeah. It was yeah. a pun.
0: I couldn't uh,
1: uh, turn right. a Turner phrase I couldn't resist.
0: Um uh, but yes, no, that, uh, that you know, that we, we talk about age, we also need to talk about the value of experience, a very hard thing to illustrate politically, but I think practically was true in this instance. I struggle to think of other plausible presidents uh, doing as well as he did on the Ukraine issue, I mean, not just Donald Trump, who... Uh, because of his affection for Russia, uh, you know, would not have uh, uh, put the United States in that position. But also other people who ran for president as Democrats in 2020. I don't know if any of them could have done what he did.
1: Yeah. I, no. I highly
0: doubt they they could have.
1: Yeah. No, uh, I agree. I mean, I, I can't think of anybody who could have pulled everything together um, the the way he did. So, um, obviously, you could not deal with these in the book because they just happened, but I do have to ask you, Joe Biden facing two major hits this week. Um, One, Republicans starting an impeachment inquiry against him, and two, the attorney general filing, uh, uh, charging his son uh, with three counts of uh, crimes related to a purchase of a gun back in 2018. How does Joe Biden deal with the impeachment issue? Does this knock him off his track? Does this just derail him? What do you think? Um, well, I think it, he
0: saw the impeachment <laughs> proceedings against him as almost inevitable, uh-huh. right? That they just given yeah. the way that impeachment now functions in our political system, the way in which Republicans were clamoring for this uh, uh, far out, um, you know, and there's not a whole lot there for them to go on, uh, <laughs> so. Uh, it kind of begins at a position of overreach, and we know how these things go where Republicans crank themselves up. Um, the question of Hunter Biden, I think it's very painful for him to consider the possibility that uh, his own justice department is might send his son to jail. Um, you know, I think I think that in retrospect, pretty clearly, and probably at the time this was clear too, it would have been to Biden's advantage if he'd pressured Hunter Biden to accept even a lesser plea deal with the justice department that Hunter Biden's worried that when Donald Trump comes back to power, if Donald Trump comes back to power, then he's going to get prosecuted again. And so he wanted a plea deal that covered him Mm -hmm. in that instance. Um, But I think everybody would have been better off if he had taken, um, a plea deal that just got him off of the guns and taxes charges that he's now facing and just left everything else, left him exposed to everything else, because then we wouldn't have this split screen scenario where
1: the Trump trial and the Hunter Biden trial happen simultaneously. Right. I guess one of, maybe if there is any silver lining, Biden can say, I told you I was not going to tell Merrick Garland what to do, right? I was going to have an independent Department of Justice. Uh, yeah, but,
0: uh, but of course, but, that's, uh, yeah. you know, the, the way that they think about uh, the prosecutor in that case, David Weiss, is like they've already got him pegged as a toady, even as he's indicting.
1: Yes. Oh, Under yeah. Biden,
0: it's uh, there's there's no way to win here.
1: Yeah. Uh, so let me ask you finally, you started out, you you, you talk about in the beginning of the book, you started out as a skeptic, somewhat as a skeptic, both about Joe Biden and about politics in general. Um, the book is out. You finish the book. You spend all this time getting close to Joe Biden, talking to people. Um, how do you end up? Um, I... I have so much more
0: of res- I mean, Jonathan Alter, the journalist, uh, told me at the beginning of this project, he said, um, uh, you know, the expression familiarity breeds contempt, but with Joe Biden, it's kind of the opposite that familiarity breeds respect. And mm-hmm. I had that in my head and that was true. It was true. Like I, the more I observed him, the way that he went about doing things, the way in which all these, uh, human qualities that he has informs the way that he conducts politics, where he's able to look at his adversaries and to kind of see their own human qualities. And then that becomes the basis for deal-making and conversation. Um, that was something that I, I gained a huge respect for. Um, and, you know, he, his limitations are clear, but his strengths are also abundant and a little bit harder to discern, And um, but they're very real.
1: Yeah. Uh, I love the phrase you kind of conclude with. Some people might think it's negative. I didn't see it that way at all. You sort of summed it up as saying he proved to be, quote, the old hack who could. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, yeah. I mean it's
0: it's true. I mean it was like everybody going back to something you mentioned earlier. Everybody underestimated Joe Biden. Everybody thought he'd be a placeholder president, but he kept pushing as hard as he could to get as much as he could and
1: uh he got it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's all told the story is all told by Franklin 4 in the new book The Last Politician Inside Joe Biden's White House and the Struggle for America's Future. It is available uh, right now. It's already out. And uh, a link. To, you'll find a link in the episode notes of today's podcast to get your own copy. Uh, I was intrigued by it, thought I knew Joe Biden well. I think I do, but I know him a hell of a lot better after reading uh, The Last Politician and appreciate him a whole lot better. Franklin Ford, congratulations. And thank you again for joining us today on the Bill Press Pod. My absolute pleasure. Thank you. And that's it for today's podcast with Franklin Four, author of the new book, The Last Politician. Believe me, you may think you know Joe Biden. You'll know him a lot more, appreciate him a lot more after reading this book. And again, as I mentioned, there's a link in the episode notes to today's podcast to get your own copy of The Last Politician by Franklin Four. And now, boy, what a week. This is Joe Biden up at the United Nations. Kevin McCarthy in Washington fighting to hold on to his job and uh, Donald Trump believe it or not telling Republicans don't be so (laughs) anti-abortion yeah this is Donald Trump preaching to Republicans boy that's going to make a great roundtable on Friday uh, where we look back at the big news of the week with three of our leading uh, political reporters so have a good week everybody but come back Friday you don't want to miss this week's roundtable on the Bill Press Pod. We'll see you then.
0: Save on Cox Internet when you add Cox Mobile and get fiber powered internet at home and unbeatable 5G reliability on the go.